This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by McDonald's. Franklin, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the Waffle House Index post-storms and so forth, but there's a lot of press the last week or two regarding inflation and what's going on and using the McDonald's Index, the Big Mac Index, as an arbiter, as a, as a reference point on what's going on with inflation. Talk to me about what the Big Mac Index is. Yeah, we've talked about this before, too. This is something that you know, every now and again, you know, comes up in conversation, not at such a high level because inflation hasn't been such a serious conversation in about, what, 40 years since um, since Joe was, you know, graduating college in 1972 or whatever. And so, yeah, the Big Mac index is in the news. Axios did a, a big write-up this last week, kind of sketching out Big Mac prices across the country, Dallas, Austin, St. Paul, Guess who's in the uh, the top right corner of the graph with the highest cost of the Big Mac show? Who's that, Franklin? Seattle. Who could have guessed it? Um, yeah, Austin, interestingly, is super cheap. So, you know, they map this to Axios does this cost of Big Mac on like a, a scale, a T-graph here with the minimum wage as well. So you can see like a scatter plot of price of Big Mac versus minimum wage. So anyway, give it a look. It's super interesting. I know pricing is a big deal for every company right now. You know, how to price, where to price, what's the right price. You know, you've got all kinds of issues with supply costs going up. And so you got to protect those margins and, and get a good good return without turning away customers. So everybody is struggling with it now. The Big Mac index is, is one thing to look at. Axios did a good write-up of it. And who doesn't love a good Big Mac? You talk about consistency. The Big Mac tastes exactly the same in 2022 as it did in 1972. And so I love love me some Big Mac. And on that juicy note, let's do the show. We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. We need a political revolution. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the heat has been turned up on Disney and the state of Florida is attacking their tax status. Is this debacle emblematic of what awaits other corporate brands? Is this a good time for corporate leaders to re-examine their relationship with partisan politics? We'll discuss. And New York's comptrollers once again leveraging the state pension fund to pressure corporate shareholders to back resolutions, calling on the companies to adopt climate resolutions to meet net zero goals by 2050. Is activism by state CFOs the wave of the future? We'll take a look. And of course, the latest and greatest on Starbucks, which this week saw its 27th unit vote for unionization. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with the legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line public strategies partner, Franklin Coley. And Franklin, Mickey Mouse, no time for Mickey Mouse. The Disney thing just seems to be getting worse instead of better. Can you give us an update on the Disney, Florida, DeSantis, don't say gay fiasco in the Sunshine State? Yes. Um, Where to start? I will say, Joe, that we were talking this long before it kind of made it into the national news as a, uh, a case study that people should be watching. Let's see. I think where I want to start is I don't want to bury the lead here. I, I think this is an excellent case study. And I, I think folks around the country should be looking at this. C-suites around the country should be looking at this to un- understand 
how political incentives around politicians on both the left and the right are changing to really push them in a direction to come after corporate brands. Now, you know, Gavin Newsom in California, you know, is coming after corporate brands in in one way, which is very different than Ron DeSantis. But the kind of incentives, the political incentives that have been set up on both the right and the left are, are creating this dynamic. And let me just expound on that really quickly, and then we'll get to some back and forth. But Ron DeSantis is running for president. We've had this increasing nationalization of politics from the top down, where even if you're not running for president, you're playing in this national environment where these national kind of cultural issues are are at play. Traditional governors from the state of Florida anywhere else would not really spar with the largest employer of the state. Traditional governors, historically, you know, governors, the largest employer in the state, Republican or Democrat, they're going to have a good working relationship. And we've seen that in Florida and we've seen that elsewhere. But we're in this environment now where everything is so nationalized. Social media obviously feeds this. The echo chambers feed this, where the the political incentives are different. Governors have a greater, in some cases, in Ron DeSantis' case, certainly, there's a greater incentive for him to light up those conservative networks through the cable news outlets and through social media as he prepares to run for re-election and then prepares to run for president, then there is to be kind of a Florida governor. We can talk about what happened here, and we and I do want to talk about that, but I'm just, you know, this is a good case study of a dynamic that we see increasingly playing out. Political incentives are changing around the country, and we see different pushes and pulls on elected officials, and brands are going to continue to struggle with managing that and, and navigating it. And quite frankly, they're going to need to be smarter about how they they kind of approach these issues. But for me, that's the big case study of what happened here. And we can talk about how Disney, in my opinion, really kind of mishandled things from the jump and, and kind of got into this this situation. But but I think that's the key takeaway and what's at play. Well, and I think, you know, uh, you could sit back if you want to want to be the two old guys in the balcony, the Muppets, and you could cynically, you know, kind of giggle at all this. You know, this is this is the government they paid for. This is, you know, this is the candidate that no, no matter what kind of uh, nonsense he was blurting out during the campaign, they couldn't write million dollar checks fast enough. And so now they've got the government that they paid for. And so they have nobody to blame with themselves. What should be happening in all corporate boardrooms is reassessing what their relationship is to electoral politics. I'm not saying anybody should be going and, 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 and subsidizing the Democrats. That, that is not far from what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's Disney today. It'll be another brand tomorrow. Your, your, your millions of dollars of political equity over 30 years can be gone in an instant. There's a Wall Street Journal editorial that I put in Midnight Reads last week entitled uh, Revolt in Disney's Florida Kingdom. And it's talking about how polls are showing increasing GOP hostility among the base to big business. And of course, the, you know, the, the, the GOP has created this 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 unrest and the unrest will ultimately, you know, at no point in human history have the have nots worked closely with the haves and it will the mob will turn on them eventually as well. And so it's just interesting to watch this dynamic. It's, you know, it's well, I guess interesting is one word for it. But Disney created this monster in the in the in the macro and in the micro through their own inept uh, handling of situations thrown at them made this 
immediate calamity, uh, uh, you know, a huge, a bigger problem than it needed to be. But at the end of the day, I think corporate, I, mean, I, I think that the chamber that we talked about two years ago, the U.S. chamber is is kind of on the right track. The business community has to reassess its relationship to politics in general and 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 understand that in the current environment, there really are no lasting political allies. So let me push back on, on uh, I agree with the, your broader strokes, but I want to push back in some pieces of that. So the business community writ large kind of supported DeSantis's opponent in the Republican primary, Adam Putnam, who lost, who was dispatched by Ron DeSantis. Probably majority came around in the general election. but Probably? How about 100%? Okay. I think the, the larger point that I would make here is that the political incentives and dynamics are such that increasingly, both on the right and the left side, we're going to have candidates winning and advancing that have animosity towards big business and corporations. And we can we, we need to look not look back much further than the last presidential races where we see Bernie Sanders, his rise, right, and Donald Trump's rise. You know, both kind of had a chip on their shoulder towards big business. And what we've seen is we've seen that animosity trickle down into all these other races, into all these other candidates as they move to the right and to the left of one another. And so Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders pulled Joe Biden way to the left on a bunch of issues. And Donald Trump has pulled a lot of Republicans way to the right. And you, you see Marco Rubio, you know, a couple of years ago called out, I hope Amazon unionizes because, you know, Jeff Bezos is a political activist. You know, you have Ron DeSantis now kind of picking up as, you know, the mantle as the new Republican front runner, and he's leaning into that space as well. And you see more and more Republicans with this kind of anti-business animus. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm agreeing with you in part and disagreeing with you in part. I think that the the paradigm, this new paradigm, the new pushes and pulls is going to create a lot of new candidates on both the right and the left and pathways for them where animus towards business is going to be a winning political tactic, good politics. And that is something we talked about a lot in this podcast over the past couple of years. But like this is kind of a seminal moment for me in in the development of this storyline and this narrative where you have, you know, number two on almost every state ballot right behind Donald Trump as, you know, a Republican nominee for president. Now we're a long way out and that will that will probably change. But certainly a leading conservative voice, standard bear right now for the Republican Party attacking the largest employer in his in his home state mercilessly, in fact. And I think that dynamic is here to stay and will come at us in some some different ways. I do want to. So I had some drive time over the weekend. I'm like exhausted on my podcast. So I went I don't often listen to Pod Save America or Ben Shapiro. Obviously, one's the left and one's the right. But the end of last week, this was the lead topic on both of those podcasts. So you had the former Obama guys talking about Disney and this exact situation and the political dynamics around it in Pod Save America. And then you had Ben Shapiro, who's, you know, a conservative podcaster talking about it as well. And it was super interesting to get the the left screen, right screen kind of split on their on their takes on it. And very informative, I think, of the pushes and pulls 
on the left side of the aisle and the pushes and pulls on the right side of the aisle. Both of them ain't good for corporate America. I can tell you that. And Disney did not fare well in either conversation. So that is worth a listen if you've got some airplane. But, 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 I, but I think the broader question I'm, I'm, I'm kind of asking is, are, is the business community, business, you, know, you made a point about Bernie Sanders, the business community wasn't subsidizing their attacks by Bernie Sanders. The business community is now subsidizing their attacks by the Republican Party. So my, my point being, you know, it's, so it's a different thing. Corporate America has to reassess the way they involve themselves in the political process, what they think they're getting out of the process. And if, you know, if, if you know, I, I know Disney's a little different, but there's a cost associated with it. And one day brand X for no apparent reason is going to say no to some type of, I don't know, gun rally in their parking lot. And all of a sudden they're going to be beat down by the conservative, you know, blogosphere for the next three months. It's like, it, 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 and you're the ones writing the check for it. So I just think it's, it's the U.S. Chamber saying the same thing I have and they have in two years. It's, it's time to reassess the business community relationship with this group of political leaders on the right. Yeah, I agree with that. And so kind of transitioning off that, and we've we've spent the past couple of weeks talking about this, so I don't want to relive too much of this. But I do think it's worth level setting how Disney approached this exact situation and how it could have been done differently. And if Disney had gone into this on day one and said, Here's because it was totally predictable that Ron DeSantis was going to view this as a political attack by them and respond in kind, or I would argue 10 times greater, which is his style. And I did argue that to people weeks, months ago. So that was predictable. And so if if you're Disney, you're kind of laying out like, okay, what what can what can happen to us, you know, A through Z, if we get into this back and forth with the governor, he could do this, he could do that, he could do that, it could escalate like this. You know, if they made a decision, we're okay losing Reedy Creek Improvement District because this issue is that core to our company and and our company values, and let's go all in on this, then they they played their hand wonderfully. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion that they may actually make out you know, a beneficiary in this because they're shifting a tax burden over to Orange County. I don't think that was their game plan all along, but if that had been their game plan, then this would have been beautifully executed. So, you know, I think that calculus from the get-go is what was lacking in inside the company. There was not a thorough discussion and debate around how, we're, how hard are we going to push? When are we going to push? What's that going to look like? What's the back and forth? You know, I think if the when session ended, I was talking to a Republican state legislator who was driving back from Tallahassee who voted against the don't say gay bill. And I, I said to him, well, you're not in an open feud with the governor. And he's like, of course I'm not, because I supported him on, you know, X, Y, Z. And I was like, exactly. There was a hundred ways you could go about opposing the don't say gay bill and still not getting in an open feud with the governor. There, there were ways to do that. And there was ways to reinforce your company culture or your culture, your core beliefs by opposing that that bill or other bills for that matter, and still not getting in a escalating feud with the governor. And ultimately, I think that is where kind of the failing was. And I think there's a big learning in that, too, in the way in which this issue is handled and managed from, from the company side. 
I, th- I think the mob was already itching for a fight with Disney just because of the content of their, just because the There's nature no of their content over the last no eight or 10 years and their shows. And there was a whole thing. They were just spoiling for a fight. They found their little, you know, invented little reason and they made a big deal and they're having their fun. Uh, you know, you know, I've talked about it. I don't know that legally, you know, at the end of the day, you know, this is, this is performance art, right? At the end of the day, legally be very difficult for the straight state to extract itself out of what it's got going. And it may be a big money loser for, you know, everybody involved. So except for Disney. So I, I think once, you know, they'll, they'll go on to some other target here in the next, next couple of weeks, invent something else. And, but Disney just, you know, th- right now there's nothing more Disney can do. They've, everything's been said, everything's been lobbied, everything's been done, every, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think there's got to weather the storm and the, and then the gang will go on to, you know, some other target, some other boogeyman yeah. in the next couple of weeks, and, and we'll be just, just to be clear, though, this issue was curated and handpicked to your point because it's it's a winning wedge issue. It right. divides the Democratic base. This thing polls, you know, at 70 percent or something like that, this particular issue, and it infuriates kind of the it is a classic wedge issue. How does it divide um, the Democratic base? Because it it polls the content of the legislation polls at like 60% approval with Democrats. Oh, shit. Nobody, you can't find anybody in downtown Orlando that even knows what's in the legislation. That, that, that's ridiculous. It it, it, it it chums the base, and that's all it's for. Nobody, so, you, you couldn't find 100 people, the first 100 people you pick in Florida right now can tell you anything that's in that bill. So, so ridiculous. 100%. But if you poll them, which there was polling that came out at the end of session on the contents of the bill, that polled, it was released by Florida Politico. I can go pull it up and, and for the listeners. But it, it found that, that this polls across the general population and, and general voters, the, the content of the legislation itself is wins, is very favorable. And even within the Democratic base is very favorable. The reason it sets both bases afire, both the right and the left, sets them afire, and, and divides the Democratic base from mainstream voters. And that is the definition of a classic political wedge issue. And this issue was chosen. DeSantis is very good at choosing political wedge issues that fire up his base and fire up the other base. But at the end of the day, mainstream voters are going to break his way on the issue. And, and a lot of these education issues, we saw it in the Yunkin race, we've seen in others, a lot of these education issues fall in that classic kind of wedge issue category. And so he, he kind of walked Disney and others into this trap where this was a perfect issue for him. And, and that is where I think there was, there's a lot of miscalculations in this. You know, if this was an issue that Disney was going to go to the mat for and they're willing to lose Reed Creek and whatever. Okay, cool. Like, Totally fine. Like, I can understand why you're against this issue. I can understand that you're willing to lose certain things. I can understand you're willing to go to a few. That's all good and well if you kind of had those discussions and planned on that. But I don't think that was the case. And I think they walked into an issue here that was specifically designed for them to be the ultimate loser in this. And I, and I think they, they walked into that, kind of barreled into it without thinking through all the pushes and pulls and, and potential consequences. And I think this played out exactly how Ron DeSantis would have liked for it to play out. Anyway, we'll wrap this up, but there's a, there's a lot in here. We can keep talking about it. You know, I, I hope you this know. is the last podcast that we, we talk about this issue. 
but it's super interesting. I think there's a lot of learnings packed in here. So Frank, we talked in the last segment about government going after corporations in one way. Uh, our friend, the New York State Comptroller, Tom DiNapoli, has been going after corporations in another way. What is our New York State Comptroller doing yet again? What we have, and we're going to have more of this, is we have the New York State Comptroller looking at climate and climate vulnerability in the way that pension fund investments are made. So this is all in the ESG space, right? So we, we've got this, we've had an uptick in investment firms themselves, like BlackRock and others, calling on the SEC for more transparency and disclosures in this space so that they can make informed investing decisions. And now you have the New York State Comptroller, who's usually the tip of the spear on kind of issues like this, but others follow pretty quickly behind, is now saying that we need to we need to know this information because it's going to drive investment decisions by by pension funds. And so we continue to get more kind of conversation and momentum in this space from the investor class. Franklin, do you think other state comptrollers, we've seen this guy before, he sent out a, a set of letters to some restaurant industry pension funds about six months ago. I haven't seen other kind of state, either AGs or comptrollers get in that space. Do you think other states will get into this space and follow him against these these big shareholder you know, entities? Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, he's the tip of the spear and uh, we've seen this before. Oftentimes other states are going to follow, you know, look, look at Illinois next, right? So, you know, I think this is, uh, we're going to continue to see this. And there was, there's an article in today's uh, news cycle, I think it's in the New York Times, that uh, Warren Buffett is getting a, a lot of grief from his investor groups and, and a lot of his entities and he's making news by kind of pushing back on that. Um, they're trying to force Berkshire Hathaway, Berkshire Hathaway to make some moves in this space. So good article in today's New York Times, Monday New York Times, regarding this particular issue. So good one to watch. And uh, in particular, the New York State Comptroller is is looking for net zero by 2040, which you know the original commitments were net zero by 2050. And we have a few companies, I think, that have committed to that in the restaurant industry. And that would be, I think McDonald's and RBI are the two that are popping out, Joe, but there, there may be one other in there, but very few relative to kind of the big brands and other spaces, you know, the Walmarts of the world have, have made bolder commitments and earlier commitments or are further along in that process. Our industry, those commitments that I just mentioned were just made in the past month or two. So they're relatively new. So we're a little bit behind the curve in terms of our counterparts and other segments in, in making these commitments. And as we discussed with the Maryland natural gas bill, right, we have some unique challenges in that we use gas in a lot of our kitchens, right? So that alone, that fact alone, not to mention all the other, you know, pushes and pulls on us is going to make it harder for us to get to net zero. So we have kind of some institutional challenges that, that make it more difficult. We're a little behind the curve. And so this should set off some some more alarm bells with corporate brands. Well, Franklin, according to the calendar, it is the end of April. And with the end of April comes the 1st of May. Next Sunday is the 1st of May. 
May Day, a big day for labor activity, labor activism. Should we expect to see a little kind of some street theater on May Day this year, more or less so than we've seen in past years? Let me give little let me give May Day a little Google and see what's happening here. I think so. You know, usually, you know, we've had ebbs and flows. Some years May Day has been a really big deal in some markets. It's almost always a big deal in LA, by the way. But some other markets, like Minneapolis is one that jumps out of my mind uh, a couple years ago. You know, we had an immigrant workers national day of action that layered across a May Day about three or four years ago that led to disruptions at restaurants. People walked out, but that was limited to places like LA and, and, and other markets where there were a lot of demonstrations, street demonstrations, workers walked out to join those. So it's been hit or miss. It is an international day. It's international workers day. It's an international day of action. Internationally, it, you know, it, it's often a big day. It's been hit or miss in this country. To your point, Joe, this year, given everything that's happened over the past, let's call it six months, I do think we're probably going to have a bigger day of action than, than usual. I do think it will be limited to certain markets. And I do think we'll have call outs and probably disruptions in, you know, San Fran and LA and some of those traditional markets. And I think, you know, other markets, we will, it won't be anything. So that's a long way to say that brands probably need to be dialed in with their kind of local operators and their local teams to be aware of which markets have the, the highest level of activity over the coming week or so. Big demonstrations planned in Brent downtown, big parades. That's where you may have kind of some disruptions and some activity. Yeah, I think those, those, those brands that have been in the news, McDonald's, Starbucks are the ones that probably should have to worry uh, the most about some of that stuff kind of leaking into their operations. So we will obviously be tracking that and report on it uh, next week. Starbucks watch 2022. Franklin, <clears throat> your favorite time of the show, Starbucks watch. What happened last week? Let's, let's be quick, but uh, give rundown. Star, uh, the, the, the Starbucks workers group had another big week last week. I can't, the weeks are like bleeding together. You're going to have to help me remember everything that, that happened last week. So 27 units as of close of business last week. The record is 27 wins and two losses for the Starbucks Workers Union. A couple more coming online this week. So uh, I think the biggest, I think the biggest development was there's basically a clean, clean sweep in Richmond. So the, the company won, election, their second, right outside of Richmond. And then there were five elections basically at the same time. In it's actually Virginia. Springfield, Virginia, which is right outside of DC, right outside of DC but they won okay. the other five or six in Virginia during the same week. It was a it was a bloody week in Virginia. Yeah, in Richmond, almost all of them were in Richmond. Those, those five that they won were in and around Richmond. And so that basically is starting to lock down you know, okay, that's maybe a little aggressive lockdown, but you're starting to get a major foothold in a market when, once you get five locations. And I think we're going to see kind of more more of that where they, they start doubling and tripling down in the markets where they have, have a foothold and they're being a little more strategic than just spreading out across the country. So, you know, I think that was a big development. The NRB did force the company to hire back some workers this past week as well. So that was... Uh, that was another development, and we're going to see kind of more of that. It's just legal wrangling from from here on. So, 
you know, those, those are the key takeaways. The other thing we talked about the week before, and I'll just mention it quickly again, we're continuing to see the company's pivot in strategy kind of kind of roll out here. And so there weren't any big developments in that last week, but we're, we're continuing to see the company take a slightly different posture and way in which they communicate both externally to the external world, but also internally to their employees about this unionization campaign and what the potential impacts are. So we're, I don't think it's, I don't think they fully pulled back the curtain yet. We don't know exactly what that, that kind of pivot totally looks like, but we're starting, we're continuing to get little peaks at it as, as it happens. So um, that's the other thing to watch for. Yeah. And I, you know, we thought that they were going to pump the brakes on kind of their aggressive legal strategy uh, they don't seem to be. They 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 fired a, uh, fired off a bunch of uh, claims to the NRB last week about unfair practices by some of the labor organizers. So the it's your point. The legal beat goes on. They have not kind of you know pivoted from being you know aggressive in the legal space. So we'll continue continue to watch how that unfolds. And I and I don't think they will. I think they'll continue that. I, I think the question is more about when and where they're they're gonna they're gonna push hard and, and push strong and, and going back to the Amazon case, you know, the company clearly pushed real hard and, and, and was overly aggressive in some instances that backfired. And so I think that's, that's, you need a more sophisticated kind of approach in when and where you're, you're challenging the union. Anyway, we'll, we'll continue to watch that and see how it plays out in the, in the Starbucks case. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And as always, Franklin, we start with wages. Hawaii is, again, continues to luau to the finish. Yep, we're in conference committee. They're working out the differences in the bills. You know, we're talking about $18 an hour. It's just, you know, elimination of the tip credit. So, you know, it's just these are minor details essentially being kind of hashed out now. So they're very close to the end of the process. And then in the marketplace of entry-level employment, Fifth Third Bank and Verizon made some similar announcements last week. Yeah, $20 an hour at Fifth Third Bank. Wow, that is that is huge. Yep, that's it. And same thing for Verizon, $20 an hour for retail outlets and call centers. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, when you're competing against that, you know, work inside in a, in a fairly quiet, air-conditioned office and you can just start at 20 bucks an hour, it makes working at a um, traditional fast food restaurant or a small restaurant uh, look a lot less desirable. So it's something we continue to watch on this podcast. Franklin, seeing their neighbors in Maryland move forward on paid leave, Delaware said, we're not to be outdone. Look at this. Statewide kind of paid family leave insurance program, 80% of wages, 12 weeks per year. It will begin in 2025. It is the contribution is split between the employer and the employee. This is kind of a pretty standard formula at this point. 11th state now with paid family leave, Joe. 11th state. Yeah, we, we might get another one or two um, this year, but um, probably, you know, the states are kind of winding down. But uh, it's interesting to see Maryland and Delaware uh, in the last, uh, I think, two weeks kind of uh, finalize those legislative items. Switching gear, Franklin, busy week in the labor policy space last week, OSHA kind of uh, getting into a uh, pissing match with Arizona. Yeah. So they're essentially revoking the approval of the state's uh, worker safety plan 
um, citing what OSHA sees a repeated failure and in, in standards. So um, state OSHA departments or state labor departments, we don't have one in the state of Florida, um, but state labor departments shocker. essentially are approved, you know, for lack of a better term, chartered by the federal federal labor department and, and OSHA in particular. We're talking about OSHA in the space, but you essentially have to have the seal of approval by the feds. And that's a multi-year process to get that seal of approval. The year essentially meeting the federal standards are going further. That's what they want to ensure. In this case, they're basically saying, yeah, Arizona, you, you, ain't, you ain't cutting it. And you're not, you're not meeting our qualifications or exceeding them. You're, you're undershooting them. And so um, they're essentially going through the process of kind of revoking, revoking their status they'll have to scramble to kind of get up to speed or, or they'll lose it. So that's what's going on in, in Arizona. And I know that uh, a couple other states, I think Utah is one of them and South Carolina kind of on the clock where they may take similar action uh, going forward. Franklin, also uh, quickly, speaking of state OSHAs, Cal OSHA extended their uh, kind of coronavirus pay for affected workers through the end of 2022. It's supposed to expire here in the end of this coming September. They've extended out through the end of the year. Franklin, we talked earlier, we talked about Starbucks and Disney and all these other companies. Uh, Connecticut is moving forward, continuing to move forward legislation on the, what do you call them? What do they call the meetings? The uh, captive audience. Captive audience meetings. Tell us what's going on in Connecticut. They're eliminating captain audience, captive audience meetings. Um, so the Senate has passed it. The House is poised to pass it. The governor's expected to sign. This has been going through the process there for like, eight years. So it's finally over the finish line. We're close to the Basically, finish. you can't make an employee sit through a meeting if, if they are uncomfortable with the subject content, correct? Effectively, that is, that is it. Just so we're clear, you the federal rules around this provide an opportunity for employers to sit employees down and talk about unions right now. Jenna Bruzo, the general counsel of the NRB, wants to eliminate those, and she's going through that process now. But under federal National Labor Relations Act, you know, law, statute, you, you know, at the federal level that is allowed. At the state level, what Connecticut and others have done is they're, they're saying you can't sit them down to talk about political issues or other issues disconnected from work. That is not protected in federal statute like captive audience meetings are. So the Connecticut piece will bump up against the federal piece and maybe they'll at some point launch a legal challenge to try to knock it down if in the courts if Jenna Bruzo is not successful at doing it at the NLRB. But this this bumps up against that federal statute in the anti-union space. Is it only about union issues, Franklin? Oh. I mean, can they make me sit through a diversity training that I don't want to sit through? Uh, that's probably protected under some other federal act. And I don't know what that would be. Probably equal employment, you know, whatever that, whatever the, the, the law is. And I, what, what about politics? What about what about if yeah, a company you know on the political? Can they maybe sit through a political thing? I don't want to say. I, you know, I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but you know, what, yeah. Is, but is it only about the labor union space? Is the subject covered by this legislation? No, it's specifically it's 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 disguised as politics. It specifically goes after political discussions in the workplace. That is what it will prohibit. The political discussions bleed into a lot of the workplace condition discussions. Are you talking about fair scheduling at the state capitol or are you talking about fair scheduling in the workplace? That's the distinction. And so it's it, it's a very nuanced distinction in a lot of 
places in a lot of conversations. We have a scheduling bill up for debate in Connecticut right now. So if you're in a Hartford Starbucks and you're talking about scheduling in the workplace, are you talking about scheduling in, in the workplace? And is the employer talking about scheduling in the workplace, which is protected under federal law? Or are you talking about scheduling in state capital, which once this goes into effect, it would prohibit an employer from having that conversation? It's specifically designed at the state level to close the gap for employer speech in the workplace around this bundle of issues. And Franklin, uh, moving on to Illinois, Illinois basically passed their own kind of law on what the EEOC does with those EEO1 reports. And not only has Illinois passed their own law, unlike the federal law, which those EEO1 reports are not public, Illinois is making them public. This is a big deal. Yeah, and this was passed a little while ago, but it's just going into effect. So under the current state law, you've got to make these disclosures and they're going to make it public. Where the rubber meets the road there is, you know, can they only apply this to Illinois-based companies? You know, what what does that look like, right? So that's the real rub here in when employers have to look at, you know, their liability or exposure or under the Illinois law in particular. I will also say, though, that at the federal level, these disclosures are coming due as well. And, you know, we didn't we didn't worry about this during the Trump era. There was a lot of legal back and forth while they tried to scuttle the federal regs. But it basically stayed in the books. It, it basically just wasn't in force. And so now the newly seated EOC, which we reported on a month or two ago, a couple of weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, they're going to pick that back up. So the bottom line is, you, you've got something to look at here in Illinois. You may have some disclosures that you have to make in Illinois that may be public, but also that is part of a, a, a larger conversation that you're going to have to do some reporting at the federal level, and that's going to guide probably some enforcement actions in year three, maybe more likely year four of the Biden administration. Franklin, we talked uh, earlier about uh, Starbucks, but that's not the only company facing some some union organizing. Our good friends at Apple are starting to feel the pinch as well. That's right. So Apple has a couple of different campaigns going. They put out their demands in the, the New York City Grand Central location. $30 an hour, tuition reimbursement, better vacation, 401k. Pretty good deal if you can get it. 30 bucks an hour, man. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. And we have not really seen this in the Starbucks campaign or in the Amazon campaign where they've list a very specific list of demands. We've had demands thrown out in the Starbucks campaign. They've been totally all over the board, different by location, right? But, and they haven't been this specific really. So that, that's, an, that's a very interesting uh, development here. And Franklin, lastly, we will end up where we started up, uh, started off on the scorecard with Hawaii, also in a conference committee is that extended producer responsibility legislation. So I don't think that the differences between the House and Senate bill are very uh, significant. I'm sure that will get worked out and move its way to the governor's office. So Hawaii will uh, be, I think, now the fifth state to have an EPR law on the book. So uh, obviously we've been watching that each week and we'll continue to. Another busy week, especially in labor space. And we'll have another scorecard for you next week. Well, another week, another pod. We were both traveling, traveling folks again, Franklin, like the post-COVID bubbles burst and we're out in the world of trains, planes and automobiles. Franklin, I was out at the um, California Restaurant Association Board of Directors meeting last week and I was struck by a couple things. 
first of all, you and I have been in front of a million of those meetings. I was struck by how dialed in that leadership team was as we went over, listen to different speakers on different panels. There wasn't people, you know, milling about leaving, coming back from golf games or coming back with a, with a Mai Tai. It was business. These were some serious, serious folks, you know, lending their ear and their expertise, some of the challenges facing the uh, industry. So it was a privilege to get and spend some time uh, with the California Restaurant Association. You know, the, we talked a lot about PAGA and man, they were they were dialed in on what is happening with Starbucks and some of the labor stuff throughout the, the industry. So pretty impressive group. And then on the flip side, you and I will be in D.C. this week. What is going on in Washington, D.C.? We have the old Restaurant Association Public Affairs Conference, bang up time. Yep. It's been a while since I've been to DC. It's been a couple of months. I wonder, I think the cherry blossoms are out. Are they out right now? No, they've already they've already come and gone. They've come and gone. What month is it? Oh yeah, it's it's late March, right? Yeah, it's kind of it depends on the climate, but it's somewhere between March fifteenth and April. It's it's usually around April one, the first half of April. Yeah, so we, it's, it's, there might be some dregs on the sidewalk and in this, you know, on the streets, but some brown, some brown blossoms in the yeah. floating in the in the yeah, the, yeah. No, it's been a while since I think it's been before the holidays. I've been to DC, so anyway, good, good to, go to get up. the industry back up on the hill. Uh, obviously, it's you know, Capitol Hill is a place of significant intransigence on on many of the issues that we care about, but I still need to hear from the industry. Uh, so we'll see some old friends up there, make some new friends, and um, support. Uh, the good work that the NRA is doing up on Capitol Hill. So I uh, look forward to seeing everybody up there. And on that happy note, we will talk to you again next week. Until then, stay safe, stay informed, and we'll talk to you then. Mm-hmm.